Hi, this is Kathy Keller, co-author of The Meaning of Marriage, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. He had not known how much it affected him till now. Now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam, he could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 7, Interstellar, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapters 5 and 6. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're working our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Matt, and I am joined by my lovely co-hosts, Andrew and David. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's Space Science Trilogy, <laughs> Ransom Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. Guys, I'm very excited for this chapter. I've interviewed two people in preparation for this season and for some After Hours episodes who have written books on this, and both of them have mentioned in their books the incredible importance of chapter five, like really this period four, five, and six of of what Lewis is doing in this book. And so from that alone, I hope you guys are ready for a lot of wisdom, spiritual truths, beautiful stuff in this chapter five particularly. But then also the language. Mm -hmm. Again, Dr. Glyer, I don't know if she's coming out before this or after this, but she mentioned that there's so much... (laughs) <laughs> yes, Diana. I don't know why I keep saying that. Out of respect, reverence, she just blows my mind so much. Uh, she just mentioned how it's like poetic, the way that he writes in this book. And this chapter has so much of this. So anyways, I'm I'm geeking out and getting way ahead of myself. So anyways, uh, I'm looking forward to this. But gentlemen, how have you guys been? I've been great. <laughs> Me too. I actually just wrapped up an episode with the uh, Inklings Variety Hour podcast. They're doing a three-parter on Out of the Silent Planet. So nice. I jumped really? in to go and steal all of their ideas and pass them off as my own. Yes, <laughs> very nice. Well, how are you guys? I was, I was kind of curious as we, as we dive into this. How We're starting to get into the book. I mean, how are you guys enjoying it yeah. so far? I'm a man. I love this book, and I love. I hadn't noticed how short the chapters were. Um, mm-hmm. I too just uh, just I did a couple of of interviews today, including one with the That'll Preach podcast, and he wanted to have me come on and talk about. Um, <clears throat> sorry, drinks at hand, gentlemen. <laughs> oh, here we go. I did a professional development for a school out in Seattle area on Do We Have Faces. And mm. then Brian Zhang with uh, That'll Preach. Thank you. Brian wanted to talk about Out of the Silent Planet. And he said, yeah, and could you throw in a few ideas about Till We Have Faces? <laughs> and so I, I said, have to leave this episode. I can't drink and leave too much. We got to hold back here until we have faces reference. We're going to circle back. Uh, I'm going to circle back with That'll Preach and do uh, the the... Let's just call it the Heavenly Trilogy, not the Space Trilogy, based on the distinction made in the chapters. Oh, so we're gonna like we're gonna do that next time. But we did a little run through with Tilia Faces, and that was great fun today. But I, yeah, I'm just I'm loving this book, and yeah, you're right about this chapter. I think for my money, chapter six and chapter seven as well. Um, really. Well, we're doing six this week, this this today oh, yeah. too. I'm just hoping yeah, we have time yeah. to get to it. <laughs> well, I'm very then forward. drive us forward. Sure <laughs> That's true. Well, I'd better then explain why today's episode is called Interstellar. Uh, in today's chapters, we are going to spend our time on board the ship among the stars. And so the 2014 Christopher Nolan movie of the same name, Interstellar, uh, seemed like a good title. Incidentally, this is a movie that I really love. Uh, my friend Barbie cries at every time and which my wife can't stand. <laughs> Whoa, I, the scene, oh, I don't want to just give it away, but like the scene when he's watching some of those videos, I'll just leave it at that. I mm-hmm. bawled, genuinely yeah. bawled. I mean, it's, it is a, it is a powerful movie. I had waited so long to watch because this is a long movie, if I recall. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it like, oh, this just seems like it drags on. I just pictured them in this constant dialogue in space. I mean, I, I just, I never felt the desire to watch it. And finally, when I did, I go, how did I not watch this? It was an incredible <laughs> movie. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and that's one of the things you'll learn about being married is, you know, the times when you get to watch your own movies begin to shrink. <laughs> so, no, Marie good, has been good. very good. She she has allowed me to show her lots of British TV. And we're actually ah. currently enjoying the new season of All, Cre- All Creatures Great and Small. Oh, I have a story about that. So for our anniversary, we're recording this on uh, Friday the 13th. Um, dun, dun, dun. Our, dun, dun, dun. our anniversary, Kristen's and my sixth anniversary was last Saturday on the 7th. And uh, we were at Sarasota the night before for a 12th night party. And then we came racing back to Orlando. We have uh, membership at the Botanical Gardens. And they did the premiere of the of the first episode of the new season, which I don't want to give it away, but it's a wedding episode. So that was entirely appropriate that morning. We had <laughs> tea and scones and Kristen and I went to the Botanical Garden. I dressed up in my tweeds. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, and the star of that show is also the star of of uh, most reluctant convert he plays the young c.s lewis so there's a nicholas ralph yeah, absolutely we should get him on the show i have been trying i have been pulling all of the various <laughs> strings that i that i that i have uh he, he it'll happen eventually you can't hide forever norman can't have you have you checked with norman yet mm-hmm, i have okay all right he he was in the he was in the middle of recording last time I reached out, so I'm oh, okay. gonna start bombarding him fairly shortly. It's like you're done. You've got nothing <laughs> else to do. Come on, come talk to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what's everyone drinking yes. today? Ah, I'm drinking. It's a, the Macallan Twelve, but it's the one that I brought back from England. But I had just got my bar set. I ordered a bar set from Amazon. Uh, so that I have a jigger to mix my Hendrick uh, gin and tonic. And I was really excited about having that today, but there was no time. So I've got the, um, I've got the Kalaila and that will do quite nicely. Oh, so you're not drinking Macau 12? No, that's you who's drinking Macau 12. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, I just missed everything you said because Siri, Siri thinks I talk to her all the time now. <laughs> so she was just speaking into my headphones at the exact same time that you were. This is I, a bummer. I just tell Siri, her delete hard drive now. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he's still here. Oh. It didn't work. So a little scotch for me. How about for you, David? Uh, I am drinking a Dunkelweissen from Hibernia Brewing Company, and it's from the nearby Eau Claire. Nice. I'm drinking a very nice... Ardbeg. Mm-hmm. It was w- from the generous gift of uh, our supporter Bud. Bud and Summers. Yes, I won't state the amount, but I wanted to make sure I spent it all on a single one. So it's a, it's a nice bottle. And then, uh, in addition to that, I wanted it to be one that I I don't typically drink. It's a fun to experiment on something new, and so I have already had a little bit. Uh, and it is a very nice peaty scotch. It's very peaty uh, on the opposite spectrum of Macallan. And it says turbulent, peppery, dark fruits. Mm. And so this is this is new to me. Have any of you gentlemen drank an Ardbeg? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I really very like nice. an Ardbeg. I've cut it with a little water just because my norm, not water with the ice that's melted slightly because I'm not as much of a peaty person. <laughs> You'll never grow a beard like that. <laughs> that's my problem no, i'm wondering i'm no. 31 years old almost 32 and i still haven't dr- grown a beard that'll take chest hair off of you putting ice in your scotch <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well gentlemen uh today we are going to be saying cheers in the finnish language and so that is david am i saying this right kippis kippis yes Keep us. Keep us. Beautiful. And we're going to be toasting our top tier supporter, a top tier supporter, Lori Green. And so can our resident Toastmaster, soon to be priest, actually as the time of this recording, you're listening to us, our resident priest offer a beautiful spiritual toast to Lori Green. Absolutely. Well, Lori, we lift our glasses to you at the beginning of this new year, and we pray that as we elevate our spirits, so too your spirits will be elevated, uh, and certainly we appreciate all of your support. So to you, Lori, keep us. Keep us. Keep us. Now, for my very first 100-word summary, despite being... My second episode leading, the first one I got let off the hook because it was the first chapter. 
You're welcome. <laughs> and I wrote this without using I, I was going to use David's previous one and I just piggyback off that with a little bit more. But I was like, nope, I'm writing this scratch from the top of my head. During a relaxing walking trip, Ransom stumbled across an old schoolmate, Divine, and his colleague Weston. He quickly found out that they had ulterior motives and he was drugged and abducted. He woke up in a spaceship and has been slowly trying to piece together where he is going and why he was abducted. Thus far, we've learned Divine is very financially driven and Weston is driven by scientific idealism, both of which Lewis does not like. We have gotten a glimpse of how they use it to rationalize bad behavior, but we're only going to see it get worse. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, I had to leave it on a little bit of a cliffhanger. <laughs> well, gentlemen, let's dive into chapter five, which mm. this section as David put together is trying to get answers, which is how I left this hundred word summary. Not a coincidence. As the chapter begins, Ransom, Weston, and Divine are still aboard the spaceship, journeying towards some, at this stage, unknown destination. And so Weston doesn't speak much, but we do get a little bit here. And so what do we learn from the conversations between Divine and Ransom at this stage? Well, we find out, well, it is confirmed because we've kind of suspected it up until now, but it's confirmed that Divine thinks that Weston's solemn scientific idealism, the idea of spreading humanity to other planets, he just thinks it's ridiculous and he just doesn't care. He doesn't care about the future of mankind. He doesn't care about meeting aliens. He clearly has some different motivations. And he doesn't <laughs> say what they are, but it's very clear that he thinks he's going to be able to get rich out of this trip. And he spends all the time talking about what he's going to buy when he gets back. Ocean-going yachts, expensive women, and a, place, a big place on the Riviera. <laughs> if, you care about, if you care about money, why go for expensive women? Go for cheap women. <laughs> Okay, David. we'll. I assume that Marie is out of earshot. Yes. Hey, I'm not divine. I don't like cheap women. <laughs> Am I correct that day, Andrew? If I remember, you had mentioned last time the sun's gold or the sun's, the sun's blood. gold. I did mention sun's yes, gold. Yes, so that is yes. we're not giving any or sun's blood. Sun's, sun's blood. blood. So that's what he's Which after. We'll leave it at that. But there's, I guess, on the planet, there is sun's blood. Yes. And one of the things I, I loved about this chapter, of course, I've read this book, I don't know how many times. It has to be at least four or five. And I hadn't noticed that there are compartments that are empty for carrying something back. But now that I know what they're going to carry back, you know, it's I, I love the craftedness of this book, especially because it's supposed to be kind of just a pot boiler, just a, a professor in the in the long vacation, um, the long holiday just kind of throwing off something to amuse himself. But there's so much here. So yes, we learned that um, Weston is a scientific idealist. We learned that Divine is a capitalistic pragmatist. And I love at the end of the chapter um, that we learned that Ransom was a pious man. And so and actually, I had never thought of this before. But pius is the adjective most often ascribed to Aeneas, who makes a long journey to another land and faces great conflict. And we know that Lewis loved the Aeneid. And so by citing Ransom in his piety, I hadn't picked up before that there's a, 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 at least a, a, a hint about um, the Aeneid and, and that great journey. So lots in this chapter. Andrew does very well when he records several podcasts before ours. He really comes to ours ready to go. He's an extrovert. He just he's he's now fed and built up and ready to go. I get worse as podcasts go on. Half a dram in too. So. Me too. Let's get this over with. <laughs> so when when Ransom is asking uh, about Melichandra, we're told that Divine would lapse into satire and make ironical remarks about the white man's burden and the blessings of civilization. And in the phrase specifically to me, the white man's burden jumped out. Now, first, because when I was studying at Oxford, I did a development economics course and we read William Easterly's book, 
white man's burden. But when I later looked it up, I don't think, well, I'm 100% sure Lewis is not referencing that because the book was written afterwards. Uh, but ironically, they are very related. Uh, but what it seems to me he was referencing was the 1899 Rudyard or Rudyard Kipling. Man, as a third one, I was way off. <laughs> Kipling poem. Why do you think Lewis brings this in? I mean, this is, it, he's actually, if I understand this correctly, probably communicating a lot in this little bit right here of by bringing in the white man's burden of what's happening. Mm. What well, do you guys make of that? Kipling was an, imperial, an imperialist. So not an empiricist, but an imperialist. And this poem is an encouragement to the United States to assume colonial control of the Filipino people and their country. And so the phrase, the white man's burden, was a justification of imperial conquest uh, because you're going to be civilization, civilizing as you go. It's a civilizing mission. And just the fact that you get super rich is an unfortunate side effect. <laughs> yeah. And a, a fair bit of my, uh, a fair bit of my seminary education was dealing with the ramifications in Christianity of colonialism and imperialism. And huh. those are universally uh, understood as really negative things, especially to those to whom it happened. Um, and Lewis sometimes gets, uh, gets criticized, certainly in um, Horse and His Boy, for his attitudes about other countries. But here, Lewis is clearly pillorying uh, a materialist and an imperialist. So the white man's burden, it's up to the white man to bring the light to all the rest of, this, of civilization. And sadly, in our own history, missionary work went hand in hand with um, colonial industry and exploitation of, of countries with, with you know, people of color. And I, I would be remiss not to at least, you know, at least acknowledge that there's this, there's this real difficulty that happens. But in Lewis's novel, these two guys are going in the name of science, and then they're going in the name of capitalism. And Lewis is the, or, and Ransom is the one who saves it in the name of Christ. And so, anybody who really wants to be hasty about Lewis, the white imperialist, needs to actually read what he actually wrote, and that I think will will solve some of those issues. So, Lewis was a huge fan of Kipling's. Um, not, and to say Lewis was a fan of somebody isn't to imply that he agreed with everything that he said. But he liked a great deal of Kipling. And I think that he quotes Kipling in saying that if he could play tambourine with his toes on a street corner to save one more soul, he would do it. Um, and so although there are some real dangers to imperialism that Kipling embodied, those are in some ways dealt with. And Lewis was a fan of, of Kipling's writings. We mostly know Kipling for his Jungle Book. Yeah. I think. And fun fact, Alexander really likes it when I sing him The Bare Necessities. Ah. Do you want to sing a little of it for us? No, I only do that for my it's son at 5 a.m. when he's making me make breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, continuing on, Ransom's in this unique situation at this point where he's he's held captive. He is with people on board of a ship that he doesn't have less than stellar intentions with him. There's a lot of unknown. He knows he was drugged to be put in this situation. So that's a long way of saying he has every reason to be afraid. He's far from home. Uh, but for some reason, Lewis describes him as peaceful. And Lewis even treats us to some incredibly beautiful descriptions of Ransom's feelings among the heavens that we'll, we'll unpack here uh, in this section. But I wanted to get from you guys, you know, despite Ransom's dark and uncertain future, we're told it is hard for a man to brood on the future when he's feeling so extremely well as Ransom now felt. There was an mm -hmm. endless night on one mm -hmm. side of the ship and an endless day on the other side. Each was marvelous and he moved from one to the other at his will delighted, as his will delighted. Why do you think Ransom... Well, one, this is a multi-part question. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. In the Keep nights on. he could create by turning the handle of a door, he lay for hours in contemplation of the skylight. The Earth's, Earth's disk was nowhere to be seen. I love this line. The stars thick as daisies on an uncut lawn. 
mm. rained perpetually with no cloud, no moon, no sunrise to dispute their sway. There were planets of unbelievable majesty and constellations undreamed of. There were celestial sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and pinpricks of burning gold far out. Oh my goodness. And it's almost <laughs> revel. It's almost in the, it's almost apocalyptic in it's imitation of the language of revelation. And so he's having this marvelous time being out in the stars and that, and we'll get to that. I'm sure is the reason that we don't call it the space trilogy. It's not space. It's full of richness. So Matt, what were you asking? Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm glad you read that. That was incredibly beautiful. You know, I, I had a, it's a multi-part question. So I'm going to just ask it all and let you guys kick it off. One, why do you think Ransom's feeling so well? I guess that's probably a little bit more of a straightforward, direct one. But then with regards to this specific description, why is the endless night, which I, I would typically think of night is worse than day on one side in the endless day on the other side. So also, why do they have this dichotomy that's very clearly stated and why are both delightful? Well, I'll have a stab at answering this while Andrew is pouring himself another drink from Owen Barfield's decanter. Uh, why is he feeling... This is when it's going to get real good, Andrew, or David, once Andrew starts. <laughs> it's flowing. I'm ready for Respect it. Respect a big All right. So why is he feeling better? We actually get given two reasons. The first is physiological. And we're told that they're receiving many of the rays which never penetrated the terrestrial atmosphere. So that there's something that they are getting uh, from the heavens uh, that is changing him. And there's another reason. It's emotional. We're told a nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off ransom. And this is the idea that space is empty, vacuous, and dead. The fact that it's a mythology that that follows in the wake of science rather than the mythology that precedes science. And here's where some of the brilliance of Michael Ward comes in, you know, that that the mythology that we had is rejected in place of a mythology that's far worse. And it's a, th a pale, thin mythology. And so he's out there amongst the stars and he's feeling the planets. He's feeling the influence of the planets. And it's it's life-giving. Um, it's 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 fertile. Um, and it's creative and he's feeling that he also i have to note it's also physiological because he's had a nap he's had some sleep <laughs> he was foot sore at the end of a long day he was drugged all of those effects are off of him now and he's been able to sleep but also sleep in this kind of furbile universe all right thomas aquinas yeah i was gonna say those are practically the three things that he says get an early uh -huh. night have a bath with some glass of wine <laughs> That's exactly right. He, uh, of course, David could pick up at what I was dropping down, you know? Well done, David. <laughs> you also asked why Endless Night, Endless Day. Uh, to quote Weston, have you forgotten the sun? So the idea is that <laughs> the sun is on one side and not on the other. So if he alternates between the two, he can either get complete night or complete day. And he definitely seems to at least have a preference for the sun side. Uh, it says, but the days, that is, the hours spent in the sunward hemisphere of their microcosm was the best of all. Often he rose after only a few hours sleep to return, drawn by an irresistible attraction to the regions of light. But, you know, also a star-filled night sky also has its own attraction. And I guess part of me, why I brought this up was, and I might have been trying to force it, but I'll be curious your guys' thoughts. I'm thinking of the medieval cosmos the conception that they had and how you start at the core of earth as like bad and you work your way out and it actually gets better. And so like hell's at the core of earth, the center and how Lewis is trying to put us towards that. And then I'm thinking of the sun was probably, they're probably between earth and the sun. And so the sun is further away from earth, which is where the light is probably coming from and the darkness is the night is probably on the left, at least in my head. <laughs> And that's probably, and so I was, I was kind of surprised because I would have thought the n endless night was the bad. That's getting closer in the medieval cosmos to the hell, sort of. And then the, the sun is getting closer to the heavens as it gets further there into the better. But, he, but that doesn't seem to be what he's trying to communicate here, uh, which is why it kind of surprised me. But I think it's that Lewisian idea that there's good, better, and best. 
to quote another line, uh, we don't need to throw out our silver to make room for gold. He, he doesn't have to reject the night sky with the bright stars simply to appreciate the sun. He can appreciate them both. He might have a preference for the sun, but the other one is still very beautiful. Hmm. There's also the, the, and we don't really get this perspective until later in the novels. So the earth is the silent planet and the earth is the dominion of the Oyarsis Satan. Um, the archangel of the, of the earth is Satan. And once they free themselves from the surly bonds of Satan, um, and once they're out into the world, and you get this sense, and you can see now why um, why Madeline Langle was such a follower of C.S. Lewis. Um, when you get out from the silent planet, you get into a larger community and this kind of creative community. And so we've got images of pregnancy that are coming up. And so it's this kind of this this universe that is pulsing with life and that has been dampened or tamped down by the influence of the enemy which has made our planet silent when it should be not only speaking but singing Andrew, you're bringing it Boom. again well done you told me to bring it i'm bringing it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right so moving forward a little bit we're told in this section that stretched naked on his bed, a second Danae. Danae, yes. Danae, I'm kind of curious, by the way, what that is. I, I, I didn't want to look it up. I want to create an opportunity for, before you answer it. <laughs> he, found it. he found it night by night more difficult to disbelieve, disbelieve in astrology. Almost he felt wholly, he imagined, sweet influence. I put this in like all caps pouring or even stabbing into his surrendered body. That's so beautiful. So first, Andrew, what is second Danae? And then I'll ask my question. So Danae is a character in Greek mythology, and she is impregnated by Zeus, who appears mm -hmm. in the form of a golden shower, not that kind. Um, <laughs> so I would also add that she was imprisoned at the time. Yes. Good, good catch. But here's where Lewis and Lewis, he gets undervalued. He gets a, accused of far too many things um, and unjustly so. And that's because people haven't read actually what he actually wrote. So he gets accused of misogyny. He gets accused of, of racism. But here we see Ransom as subject to the force of Zeus and and almost impregnated, right? And so we've got some gender stuff that goes on later in that hideous strength, which unfortunately we won't get to for several decades. Um, in that hideous strength, Lewis talks about Mars, who represents the male gender, and Venus, who represents the female gender. And he talks about the other five medieval planets who, represents, who represent five other genders. And so Lewis is playing with gender stuff and Ransom is there kind of to be out in, out away from the silent planet, away from the influence of Satan, out into the middle of the, of the, uh, of the stars is engendering, is fruitful, is like I said before, fertile. It's um, fertile. It's, it's, Nourishing. there's this all kinds of creativity going on out in the stars. Yeah. That was helpful. But now for the real question. <clears throat> so, and actually I want to start with you, David, on this one, because in the previous question, you talked about the physiological, they were receiving, he said, many rays that never penetrated the terrestrial atmosphere. And so these rays seem to be, there's, there seems to be some life to it, but we're trying not to get too far ahead. You know, what do we know at this stage? Here, it says, almost he felt holy, he imagined sweet influence. It's very related to that statement. Like there's something out there something some maybe it's not even a thing i don't even know what it could be but it's pouring or even stabbing into his surrendered body and so i want to first start with the question like what, what what are we making at this stage or know of this sweet influence it's sending these rays that are penetrating like what do you, what are you guys making the rest of this stage well this is an allusion to the ancient belief that the planets influence people and events on earth it's actually where we have the mm -hmm. word influenza from. Yes. Uh, 
And it's actually also a reference to Paradise Lost, which itself is referring to the book of Job. The line is, the grey dawn and the Pleiades before him danced, shedding sweet influence. Mm -hmm. And so there is something in space that is nourishing him, cleaning him. Uh, And I would also point out that he uses an interesting verb in that section you quoted. He said it's pouring, and for Christians we think of pouring, we think of oil, water, the Holy Spirit. And he says, or even stabbing into his surrendered body. And I associate the words stabbing and Lewis with that of the stabs of joy. I think that there's basically something beyond the the usual that is that is influencing him and enlivening him. And this idea of stabbing stabbing too, he looks at the sky god and the earth mother. And so there's some of this kind of almost sexual imagery. And to to mention Danae and to mention this kind of pregnancy, there's this real kind of primal creative thing going on. And that's part of what's going on here. I gotta say too, I don't I don't think this is an accurate statement per se, because it doesn't fit with sweet influence. And I think you're more correct, David, with the joy statement on the stabbing. But I think of stabbing into his surrendered body is like Christ stabbing on the cross. I mean, there's there's like a surrendered nature, the hands are up, the the nails are pierced, I guess would be slightly more and accurate, but they're stretched naked. Mm-hmm. stretched naked like this is very yeah. much but but it doesn't yeah. fit with the sweet influence that's why i kind of saying i don't i think this is not actually what he's trying to communicate but that's where my mind is picturing here stretched naked stabbing surrendered body i think it's all symbolic of surrender of openness to something or someone for christ it's the will of the father for ransom it's these rays it's encapsulated in the word patior in latin which means passion it means to be to suffer, to allow oneself to be done to. We call it the Passion Week or the Passion of the Christ, because not because he felt really strongly, but because he was carried away by the will of others. You get a sense of this in the King James where he says, suffer the children to come unto me. And so here is Ransom in kind of a subjective position, carried away by all of this, the fecundity of the stars. You know, and the final thing I'll add here is we're seeing that there's some, this, the sweet influence, we're seeing that there's something guiding this, you know, this, there, there's something more than just Weston and divine at play here, s- s- controlling the situation as much as that's what they seem to be the ones in control. There's something else because I, I noticed here that it said after he rose, Often he rose after only a few hours sleep to return drawn by an irresistible attraction to the regions of light. I won't say more in that quote. There's a bigger quote there. But then I also say Ransom became aware of a spiritual cause, right? There's something here. And this is the point where we get to the quote that I used for this chapter. Now the very name space seemed blasphemous. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise since of this ocean, the worlds and all their life had come. So we still aren't quite sure yet what's going on, but there's definitely more going on than what the book has said so far of just rant the Weston and divine trying to get a bunch of greedy stuff and going to a planet. There's another being, being is not the right word. There's some sort of spiritual cause, I can use that language, that is guiding this to some degree or influencing. I would suggest that the other thing that we're meant to think of, actually, we're not meant to think of it because he hasn't written it yet, but I would at least compare it to when the children arrive in Narnia and what the Narnian air does to them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we learn in Magician's Nephew that Narnia is a different planet, okay? Um, Because when they jump into a pool, they get taken through stars and planets. And so Narnia is a different planet. And Lewis is really clear on, especially because four years after this, he's writing not only Preface to Paradise Lost, which is part of why he mentions Milton so often, but he's also writing the screw tape letters. And there hangs over our whole world, there enshrouds our whole world, the influence of Satan. It's a graying influence. It's a it's a 
a disempowering influence. And once he gets free from, uh, from the surly bonds of earth, the surliness is not only the earth and its gravitation, but also the, the captivity that Satan has evinced in, in what's going on here. And so once he gets out there, he's free from all of that. Well, speaking of sweet influence, I am thinking David's sweet influence on some of my notes here as we're about to go to this next section because I don't remember typing some of this stuff. <laughs> this is because this was a minor section. Anyways, so we're, we're still on board. Let's, let's bring this back to the, the chapter. And we're told that Ransom's exploring the ship and concludes that Divine intends to fill it with some kind of cargo on the return journey, which, Andrew, you have alluded to earlier in this conversation. Well, as he's exploring the ship, we also learn that Ransom uh, is the cook of the ship. What do you guys make of, of Ransom's decision to become the ship's cook? That's an excellent question, Matt. <laughs> insightful <laughs> i literally see this and i'm like i don't remember writing this <laughs> well i actually think it's kind of important because it tells us a lot about ransom we've asked about his character at several points so far through the story and here you see that he takes on this task and he does it for a number of different reasons primarily he wants to share in the labor which is very noble you're kidnapped and you want to share with some of the day-to-day -day work. That's a very odd instinct as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but there is Especially also- Especially captive and you're being drugged by people. They're the last people I would want to show love to. Right. And yet he does. Uh, but that's also not the only reason. He says that he did this in order to anticipate a tendency which Weston showed to make him a servant and that he preferred mm -hmm. to work as a volunteer rather than in admitted slavery. And there's echoes here of some, of some of Paul's epistles when he speaks about slaves working for their masters as though they're working for Christ, that there is mm -hmm. this strange above and beyond that they're called to, to serve in love. Uh, and then there's just the very practical reason, the fact that he prefers his own cooking. Yes, absolutely. Well, and as we find out at the end of the chapter, it allows him to, um, to procure procure a weapon he gets a knife um that he can oh. hang on to uh, which is important which is important to him later all right so as we progress through this section uh we are ransom is starting to learn a bit and he overheard a conversation they're headed to melichandra he's captive and going to be used for something mm -hmm. and the heavens aren't as bad as he thought but he still doesn't know much about their destination which will soon change. But anyways, while he's in the galley, he overhears a conversation between Weston and Divine that provides some very helpful and alarming information. So that's what we're going to unpack here. So first, I found it interesting that as he's about to sleep, he was restless, and it, quote-unquote, air quotes, coincidentally, occurred to him to go to the galley. This fits with what I mentioned in the previous section or two sections ago. <laughs> I think we can all relate how many coincidental things in life aren't very coincidental. And so I really just wanted to highlight this. I'm not sure we have much more to add to this, but we just talked about the sweet influence, the spiritual cause, the coincidentally, we're getting constant clues that there's something else going on here that's not just Weston and Divine driving everything. You know, it... Reminds me of Lewis's essay, um, Will We Lose God in Outer Space? And he yeah. reflects on the Russians who were the first to put uh, manned space travel uh, out there. And the Russians came back and said, well, there's clearly no God because we went to heaven and we couldn't see him. And um, it's uh, much depends upon the seeing eye is Lewis's response. But once they, they get out there, they're, they're, they're closer to God. And they're away from Satan's influence. And so, as we'll see later on in the book, they're, if they're away from the influence of the archangel, the fallen archangel Satan, it serves, it serves to reason that they would be closer to the influence of other archangels and angels as they're out there in the heavens. I never really thought of that, Andrew. On the silent planet, 
it's Satan's influence, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I, arguably there's not as much of a sweet influence going on there. In fact, I think if, if we think of our time on earth, it does feel like there's a Satan really trying to, to pull us away from God. Where a lot mm-hmm. of this book has actually been positive influences, but where Satan's coming in is through the fallen humans in mm-hmm. this case. And so you have positive divine, it seems like, influence and negative human influences kind of competing against each other. So positive divine with a D-I. <laughs> You're right. I didn't think about Ransom that. <laughs> and negative uh, satanic influences, right? Yes. And so if they get out of the silent planet, they get into the speaking solar system which is why he won't call it space. He calls it, you know, he calls it the heavens. And if you've read your revelation, you know that the heavens are full, not only of the glory of God, as Psalm 19 said, as you noted in the notes, and that was Lewis's favorite Psalm, but the heavens are also full of angels and singing. And so he gets out into this world where there's a a different spiritual economy going on. Mm, I like that. Well, gentlemen, so there's this conversation he overhears. So I'm going to lean on you a little bit. What do we learn from this conversation? What is he over here? What do we now know a little bit about Melanchondra? All that good stuff. Well, he hears the conversation between Western and Divine, and we only get one side of it, but there's enough clues there for you to work out the other side of the conversation. They're arguing about whether or not to drug Ransom before landing on Melanchondra. If they don't drug him then they can at least make him work, but he might be a flight risk. And this is the first time we hear the word Sorn used in reference to the planet's natives. And it's strongly implied that Ransom is to be handed over to them as a human sacrifice. Although Western Divine don't seem very certain on that point. And they also seem to suggest that at some point they're going to try exterminating all of the inhabitants on the planet. Mm-hmm. The, the line is, when the time comes for cleaning up the place, we'll save one or two for you, and you can keep them as pets or vivisect them or sleep with them or all three, whichever takes you. Mm-hmm. Which fits, by the way, with that like white man's burden arrogance. Exactly. That they're, they're superior. We're going to assert our will. We're going to do what we need to do, appease them, get it, and then kill them. It's the language of, of ethnic cleansing, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. It's, that's exactly what's going on. And speaking of evil, there's something I've now started paying more attention to is the language that these men use. And they use the language of damnation quite a lot. They talk about cursing. And in this case, he says, mm-hmm. I think it would be damn silly. And it was only because it's such an odd spelling, it reminded me of this season's Narnian Chronicle, when Uncle Andrew says, she's a damn fine woman, a damn fine woman. Damn fine. <laughs> and yeah, Lewis used damn, uses damned and hell purposefully and calls our attention to it in, other, in, in, in his other works too. Did you notice in this section that Ransom comments that Divine bolts his door? Do you think he's afraid of Weston? Do you think he's afraid of what Weston might do I to miss, him? I completely miss that. Sure, absolutely. Um, and they're both pretty scary, scary characters. And we find out soon that it's not just uh, a disgruntlement between them, but there was a mutual hatred between them mm-hmm. and an intention to do to do great harm and even kill. And if if ransom is being brought as a human sacrifice, they don't care about him, and they're willing that he die. And so, yeah, the stakes are starting to get really high. I would love to see this portrayed as a movie, but I don't know how they could portray in, I don't know how many scenes, um, the, the amount that Lewis conveys in these two chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one final thing I'll, I'll just highlight here was the, the meeting the brutes, the description of them. We're about to see a little bit more of this, but there's this idea that they're going to this foreign planet. Think of our conceptions that we have of aliens and what they're like in some of the movies that we see. I mean, there's very much that going on here. And we'll see how that plays out, whether that's true or not, what influenced them to think that way. But uh, that did stick out to me uh, of how they're portraying these individuals as stupid, brutes, monsters, sex. Mumbo they don't jumbo. even know if they have sexes. Mumbo jumbo. Yes, that was a, yeah. the word that I had seen. Exactly. Yes. From H.L. Gile, or from H.L. Gates, by the way, 
Um, yes. It's a Swahili greeting. But I, I think that that's, and that's one of the purposes that I mentioned in a previous episode of Lewis is that he's interested in the spiritual ramifications of space travel and he's dissatisfied. Lewis is, as a consumer of science fiction, dissatisfied with the portrayal of aliens as either monstrous or servile, right? Why can't they be about as normal as we are? And um, well, we'll see in future chapters whether or not that comes, comes how that works out. It's funny when you said that as either monstrous or servile, I thought you were going to say, why not both? And then I thought of the Twilight Zone episode where the, there's the book To Serve Man. I was like, that's a beautiful encapsulation of that idea. <laughs> well, and that I, I wonder if that isn't um, a reflection of the, of the, uh, the cookbook. Um, and they invite them to the summer banquet. Mm-hmm. Right, in Narnia. In the silver chair. So, yes. I'll, I'll try and find a link to that Twilight Zone episode. It's a really good one. Yeah. Well, one, one final question before we jump to chapter six. Why do you guys think that there's this view as monsters, brutes? I mean, in theory, they're going to an unknown. But yeah, he's going into an unknown with preconceived notions. Why is that? I think it's because later on in the page, the reality would be worse. It would be an extraterrestrial otherness, something one had never thought of, one could never have thought of. And so I think it's part of why we populate heaven with this idea of being reunited with our dogs and our grandmothers. And while that may be part of it, heaven is so much more than that. And you find it in, uh, reflected later in, What Diggory says, just think of what a, or no, Diggory? Yes, it's Diggory in Magician's Nephew. Just think of what another world might mean. You might find anything, anything. So this otherness is what Lewis was interested in. What would another life form look like? And we're too quick, I think, to paint them in two different ways and not to see them as other life forms fairly much like ourselves. And Eustace Scrub, he was at a disadvantage because he had read all of the wrong books. And Ransom doesn't seem so bad, but it still seems like his imagination has been primed and formed and shaped by authors like H.G. Wells, who has taught him what he should expect. And I'd also say, as an aside, this is part of an argument as to why Ransom is also Lewis, because the thing he's really afraid of are things that look like insects. And if you read Surprised by Joy, this is one of Lewis's childhood fears. Yes, Absolutely. And he's read a ton of Wells and he acknowledges his debt at the beginning of the book. But there's also what's going on in Ransom and Ransom is driven by fear and fear clouds the vision. And remember, as we find out until we have faces and elsewhere. Mm, I've been drinking that a little bit. Clarity, seeing things clearly is part of what Lewis is about. And what we'll see in chapter seven is he's driven by fear, but then once the fear subsides, and so that's part of why we draw draw our pictures. And we, we draw our pictures of these monstrous beings partly because we are afraid. And when he finds out that there's actually little to fear and most of what he has to fear, he brought with him on the, on the the spacecraft. um, That's when things start to change for him. You couldn't have created a better transition for me, Andrew. So we're moving to chapter six. Ransom wakes up refreshed the next morning, goes back to Andrew before. It's always refreshed after a good night of sleep. And he finished the previous chapter terrified of these images. There's this fear. But it mentions, and I'm curious your guys' thoughts on this, that he separates a rational fear of this face of death, or fear of death, sorry, of like facing death, in this irrational fear of these biological monsters, which we've just mm-hmm. had a good conversation on. So what, what do you make of why Lewis separates these two? Well, in the previous chapter, he spoke about his imagination having various incompatible monstrosities as he's imagining what the Sorns are going to be like, which is, actually reminds me of something the screw tape says about what to do to have people to fear the future and even mutually exclusive futures, but treating them like they Mm -hmm. could all come together. Um, Mm -hmm. That is irrational. And so there's some things that he can control, some things that he can't, some things which are reasonable and some which aren't. Well, and this is a gross 
an inappropriate generalization that men are rational and women are emotional. And that's stupid because both are both. Women express more emotion than men have vocabulary for usually <laughs> or are given permission to, for usually. But in mere Christianity, which I was Shots just fire. teaching last Monday night. Yeah, bring it. Oh, I'm kidding. I qualified it, please. <laughs> Whenever my girlfriend uh, Marie asked me how I was feeling, I said neither hungry nor tired. Those were all the emotions I knew. <laughs> <laughs> and those aren't emotions. <laughs> those are physical sensations. Reason should rule the emotions rather than the emotions ruling the reason. And so what you have here is him trying to wrestle his emotion back into its proper place. He's not deleting emotion. He's not denigrating emotion, but he's using his mind to decide whether or not um, what weight to give to what he's feeling. And this is not Lewis being a rationalist and, 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 and dismissive of emotion. This is Lewis saying the way that we're constructed we're constructed by a mind who has love, but by a mind behind the universe. Reason should wrestle emotion back into its proper place. Oh, and, and one other thing that was in this section before we get to what I'm really curious in this conversation is he, he's he's attempting to deal with these fears. He's, he's almost like gaining a bit of a courage. And it mentions that he has this bellicose mood in here mm -hmm. like there's something going on here a little bit he's trying to address these rational fears he's got the knife that you mentioned andrew mm -hmm. uh, that he got from becoming the cook and so so and why did he get the knife from being the cook i'm not sure why no for what purpose did he take it oh he took it so that he could commit suicide rather than be handed over to the sorens whoa i, I missed that yep and it's only later he starts realizing that he could use the blade in another way to defend himself. In a moment, Ransom made a decision. He could face death, but not the Sorns. He must escape when they got to Malachandra if there was any possibility. Mm. Um, uh, starvation or even, even to be chased by the Sorns would be better than being handed over. If escape were impossible, then it must be suicide. Ransom was a pious man. He hoped he would be forgiven. It was no more in his power, he thought, to decide otherwise than to grow a new limb. Without hesitation, he stole back into the gallery and secured the sharpest knife. Henceforward, he determined never to be parted from it. He steals the knife to kill himself, but he wakes up in a more bellicose, which means warlike mood. And later on, we find out, he says, he, the thought occurs to him, oh, wait, a knife can pierce other flesh than mine. Right, a knife can be used on someone else. The mild-mannered Cambridge philologist is ready to throw down. <laughs> uh, well, this David, this fits with. I am assu very assuming that potentially my last interview will be going out after this uh, with Christiana Hale. Mm -hmm. Yes, it'll be after this. Yes, but I ask her, so listeners, listen to it about the Martian influence. And going back to Dr. Michael Ward. And so there, there's this transformation. Andrew's already alluded to this multiple times in some previous conversations. Like there's a transformation happening to him from the planetary influences. And the Martian influence is very real here. And you're seeing a warrior-like willingness to fight mm. happening to him. Good. And there's, there's some of that happening here, it looks like. And it's happening to him as he gets closer to the sphere of Mars. Yes. And that's one of the things that Lewis says. When we come into the sphere of Venus, love and language um, you know, are kind of dominant. When he comes into the sphere, of, and I'd never noticed that, Matt, so great, great catch. And he says in Mere Christianity that if you want to get wet, you've got to get into the water. If you want to get warm, you get near the fire. So what happens Ooh, when you get near yeah. Mars? Yes, yeah, uh, we just finish him with a bang. <laughs> I like it. All right, this final part, is it's the last section, but I am as much as it's it's again, it was direct, simple. There's there's a lot here I'm curious you guys' thoughts with. And so listeners, Ransom starts to notice that the ship is gradually descending. And so we're we're kind of finishing this journey to Malikandra. And it's dipping in temperature. So notice earlier he was naked when he's laying on the bed. Like there was a lot of warmth there. The, the sun was warm. So they added warmer clothes as it dipped in temperature. 
the overwhelming light, we've talked about this light, was lessening. Although it points out the unearthly quality remained exactly the same, so something there. They begin to feel the gravitational pull of melacondra and their bodies begin gaining weight, which mm -hmm. I'm sure Andrew has some thoughts on. Uh, and so that they can only <laughs> crawl. Not anything like that, Andrew. You've mentioned the impregnated a few times. No, so listen, fine. listen. All of them were afflicted <laughs> with vomiting, head, headache, and palpitations of heart. Sound familiar, David? Does that ever happen to Marie when she was pregnant? <laughs> Never. I think that there's this... There's this powerful thing, and part of what happens is um, Malachandra, Mars, is so overwhelmingly male that even the subjects of Terra, of Earth, become in some ways kind of subjective. I think that I, I think that that's I think Lewis is very purposely kind of dropping those hints. So take that with wherever you want to. Well, there, there's a lot of ways I want to take this, but let me let me start with my first question because we also notice in here so so. They're crawling from room to room. There's discomfort happening. Uh, Divine even cursed in West curses Weston for bringing them. So so things just change drastically. Let's just set the dichotomy. We had this beautiful space, this sweet influence, this all this positive stuff, this energy that refreshed the night stars that you read, Andrew, as you're looking up. And now, boom. We're descending towards Melichandra in the complete opposite. Even these people that have these are excited with this selfish drive are like mad that they're going. And I'm just curious, why do you think Lewis describes their mood changing for the negative? You know, they're out of their senses. Like what, what, why so, not only why is it getting to the negative, but why so drastic? Like what's going on here? I think he's trying to contrast heavenly and terrestrial life. They've been, mm -hmm. they've been living in this Empyrean ocean and now suddenly they're going down to earth. And you remember Ransom compared the heavens and the planets, the earths as he calls them, uh, as to what is alive and what is really dead. What is the interruption? Uh, it, and as I, as I read the end of this chapter, it makes me think of the sensation if you're driving stick shift, when you make a mistake and you suddenly go down uh, into a gear and everything sort of lurches forward and just feels horrible and wrong this is what it feels like when they're now leaving the heavens and coming to malachandra and this that confused me a little bit and i'm not sure i have a resolution for it we know that earth is bad because it's ruled by satan yes we know that malachandra is ruled by a different angel we find yes. out later um and so not necessarily bad but i have a theory andrew i like where you're going with this though I wonder if the descent away from the sun, right, is in some ways, uh, is it's a worser state. Um, I mean, I, I I was a little confused by why he would uh, by why he would do that. So here's where I, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're kind of teasing around this as well. There's a confusing part because, to one degree, I see what you're saying, David. Space is closer heavens heavens let's use heavens heavens is closer to this sweet influence and as we go to terrestrial life you're getting away from that thus better to worse not not just that actually can i just read the section i'm, I'm thinking yeah. of he saw the planets the earths he called them in his thought as mere holes or gaps in the living heaven excluded and rejected wastes of heavy matter and murky air formed not by addition to but by subtraction from the surrounding brightness this is kind of okay. like a speed bump on the uh, on on the road of the heavens and i think that does answer a ton but here's the part that still is a bit of a mystery to me was a little bit to what andrew was just alluding to earth it would make more sense for this extreme ripping it feels like i mean this was a 180 to the max going from the heavens to earth the silent planet that's fallen but we see Melanchandra still kind of in a beautiful state when we interact with the creatures. Now I'm jumping a little bit ahead. I won't say much more than that. But it seems like a beautiful, relative to Earth, it seems like a great spot. And so while I see from a great to actually, no, from a perfect to a good, I don't see like it going to a bad. But it's it feels like it's going to a bad. So part of me wasn't sure if this was like, a bit the great divorce 
of how they are so fallen of creatures. They can't, it's painful to them because they just, they're so foreign to this. But I see Andrew fully disagreeing. So I'm excited to hear this. No, I think, and and this is great. I'd never, ever thought about this before. Ooh, so I'm excited. the sun is a larger angel or a larger spiritual principle than the individual planets that are subject to the sun, right? Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is going down in the bureaucratic order. They're going from something that's more bureaucratic and obedient to something that's more bureaucratic and obedient from something that is higher and more free and more powerful, right? So the sun rules the seven planets, yes. the seven medieval planets. And so it's like going from the VP to the district manager. So from I agree the district with that. manager to the supervisor. But but here's yeah. here's the one thing that's still a little so I agree with that. And that's essentially I think what David was saying a little bit too in the comment is pointing out. Um but imagine you go from working in the coal mines, because that's like earth, like this really bottom, it, it, to up to closer to the sun, and now you're to a VP. It still seems like you're way better off no, than no, what no. you were before. No, no, no. He's going from a terrible department yep. up to the VP's cor corner office mm -hmm. down to a department. It's a better department than the one that he yep. came from, but it's still a step down. It's a cubicle no matter how nice it is. But doesn't the language suggest it's like a new low? It's <laughs> only a low like, by contrast. It's we're a we're low back to the contrast. idea of good, better, yeah. best. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If he were going down back to earth, I and we never get that description, I think. We may get it in... I don't know. There's, there's, there's the a little the, other things happen. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a little of it at the end of the book. But if he were descri to describe going down to the department, which is earth, which is worse, it's the same level. Um, it's So what's going... Ah, here it is. It's like going from Eru, <laughs> Iluvatar, the I one, the god, the, the god of Lord of the Rings. It's going from... It's going down from Iluvatar, who sings all the world into being. It's going down to either Gandalf, which is Malachandra. Gandalf is good, but not as good as the creator of all the universe. Or going down to the Balrog, which is the silent planet. Now, Gandalf and the Balrog are both, um, both Istari. They're both the same level. So it is a descent. It is a coming down in all the senses you want to make of that. Earth is the worst department. If he were heading back to Earth, I think that the be description worse. would be even far worse. I was yeah. thinking the same thing. The second you get a taste of what was really yeah. there, it's like everything yes. becomes yes. so painfully yes. awful relative to that. Yes. It's kind of like that idea of I've heard people describe of purgatory. Of like it's like you're so close to the beatific vision, but it's like so utterly painful because you actually mm -hmm. realize it's real and you're just not there. Um, it's like even worse than that, but. Um, just so listeners can, I want to read one sentence here, or two sentences so the listeners can see what we're talking about. Lewis writes, suddenly the lights of the universe seem to be turned down as if some demon had rubbed the heaven's face with a dirty sponge. The splendor in which they had lived for so long blenched to a pallid, cheerless, and pitiable gray. Blenched. What's blenched? It means blanched. It means to be made white. And pallid means gray or white. Wow. So anyways, that's what's going on here. But that's the end of any uh, – that's that's all I have, guys, driving this. I know we're a little bit over the episode, but there's just so much good stuff in here. Any concluding thoughts that I might have missed here as we wrap this up? I'm just glad that none of us have flung out strange blasphemies or copologies. <laughs> Corpologies. <laughs> yes, the science of excrement. It's terrible. Um, and I also think that – uh, especially this chapter, but certainly Lewis's work again and again holds up to great reading and great rereading. This this book is 83 years old this year. Wow. Or, I'm sorry, 85 years old. And it's still generating all kinds of insight and excitement. So yeah, I think we're on the right path. Andrew, I think this is what you feel with Till We Have Faces. I mean, this is a good No, Till We Have Faces is the culmination of Lewis. <laughs> yes. Wait, we're at best. That's a good, better, best all over again. <laughs> I know, I know. But let me just explain what I mean. I know this isn't your, your – in your world, this is way lower than Till We Have Faces. But 
the first time I read this, this book was kind of like, eh, you know, five years or 10 years ago when I read this. Now that I'm unpacking it slowly, you know, they say, till we have faces, you have to read it multiple times. You have to take it slowly. There's so much wisdom just packed in it as you unpack it. I'm realizing how much is packed into this book as we do it slowly. Mm -hmm. And the third time I've read it, it's, it's, just, it's getting better and better and better. And, you know, I'm what, 25 years on from you and three or four reads from you. And mm -hmm. it still continues to excite me which isn't anything about me. It's the quality of Lewis's work. And remember that this is Lewis's first fiction and Two Way Faces is Lewis's last fiction. So, um, so Andrew's like, it's even better. Reread it, Matt. It's the rereadability of Lewis is one of the things that makes our podcast, you know, so popular mm -hmm. because he continues to speak. You know, it's the theme of the conference that we'll have at Virginia Seminary later on this year, still speaking. And it's it's certainly true. He continues to, well, one of the scholars, I think it might have been either Jerry Root or Bruce Edwards, he said, Lewis pays, repays careful rereading. And it's certainly true. And I've discovered things about this book today uh, in this hour that I had never noticed before. And that's, that's just such a blessing. I love it. Well, listeners, as you know, we finish with an audience question. And so the question I wanted to ask, you know, we're starting to get into this book. We, we've got to see some beautiful language in the previous episodes, but then particularly this one. How are you finding, I'm genuinely curious, this is more a question of how you're finding it, but the beautiful language of the heavens that we just read here. And what I'm more curious about is, are you finding it po stirring positive feelings towards our creator, this living being out there, or does it feel too unrelatable? Personally, where this is motivated from is I've been reading this. This is inspiring me to understand how beautiful Christianity really is. We're trying to discover, as this mission of Pines with Jack is, to discover the truth and beauty of Christianity through C.S. Lewis. I was probably more in the camp of space, personally, not heavens. And so there, there's a beauty coming through with this. Lewis is accomplishing it, at least within me. I'm curious if others are finding this to be incredibly uh, beautiful. So feel free to contact us at our email contact at pineswoodjack.com. Go to our website. There's a contact contact us form, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and it's the Pines with Jack handle. And I see Andrew is ready to say something. What we find in this chapter is both nearness of approach and nearness of likeness. <laughs> and that's why it's so heavenly. I like it. On that note, I hear the call for the final drinks. <laughs> so thank you to all our listeners, Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier ones and Bud, because I was enjoying some art bag this episode. Good Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. And we want you all to know that we do pray for our listeners. You guys are a gift and we do this because we love to be able to share this with you all. Uh, and we pray for the, pr the prayer request in our Slack channel every Tuesday. So if you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend, share it on social media. Uh, and also we haven't done this in a while. If you're enjoying this, rate us on, on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to this. Five stars. If it's less than five stars, leave a, leave a comment because we do want to know why. There's mm -hmm. a couple one or twos in there, and I don't know why. <laughs> Kills my OCD. <laughs> but anyways, please join us next time. We'll be going further up and further in. Kippus. Cheers. Kippus. Kippus. <laughs> I was trying to remember it. <laughs>